Greetings, Parachauvins of Retrogrades. Today, in a series of reversion, conversion to the faith series of young people, Rules for Retrogrades features an exciting young man, <laughs> my friend, Nicholas Stumphauser, who is a filmmaker, a very talented young filmmaker, very smart young man. Uh, we've, we've collaborated together on a, a few different projects. I won't go into what those are. But I'm, I'm honored to have Nick here on kind of the slow road to reversion. We talked to Lauren earlier in the week, and we're talking to um, a, a mutual friend of Nick's and mine later this week on Friday. And I just, I want to get a round view and a flat view of what causes people at this greatest time of crisis in the Roman Catholic faith to come into the church or to come back into the church in the case of Nick here. Uh, right now. Why Why here? Why now? Nicholas Stumphauser, thanks for being with me today, my friend. Very happy to be on your show. Yeah, I, I said today. 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 Yeah. You're yeah, a little you're sleepy. From... It's fine. <laughs> yeah, no, I, we're, we're doing lots of uh, preparatory material for for this, this period of interregnum or when we're uh, doing the Mass of the Ages filming. And you're from Chicago, right? So if I started, aren't you from Michigan? The, yeah. Oh, Michigan. Okay. So same, same deal. I'm talking like the mother from Bobby's world. Uh, um, if I say today, I'm speaking your language. Today. I was in, I was in uh, Atlanta and got in an Uber. It's like two or three years ago. And immediately they're like, you're not from here. Are you? And I was like, well, gave it away. They said, you said dad. <laughs> exactly. The dad, my dad. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, it's, it's cool. It's, it's plenty masculine. You sound like, uh, the mom from Bobby's world. That's all, but I have no idea what that reference is. I'm so sorry. <laughs> because the theme of this week is at least, at least a parallel theme to each of the three shows we're doing this week is young converts or reverts to the faith. Uh, of course you nor anyone else that I'm featuring on rules for retrogrades this week would get that reference. Bobby's world. Look it up after we're done. But um, another theme, a big theme of today's show will be masculinism because I'll let you tell it, Nick, but you were raised Byzantine Catholic and Roman Catholic kind of by ritual. And yeah. you knew the rigorous altar boying for the TLM in high school. Yeah. And you got a lot of the, you know, the best sense of by ritualism that folks like me who were just raised in the Novus Ordo wished we had, and you still fell away. I don't have the categories for that because I usually say the, the folks like me who fell away into agnosticism, atheism in their 20s, and even for me, my teens, it was because of, in most cases, the Novus Ordo. What do you say? What caused you to fall away and, and what's bringing you back? The falling away was a bit of a an epistemic crisis my um, my grandfather and I are very close and we would often talk about the universe and philosophy and whatnot all growing up and one day he said that in one of our conversations that he didn't think that um, any law of nature or any axiom was unchangeable that it, that anything at any point in time could change even the fundamental laws of physics or anything you couldn't prove anything and it was my first encounter i think it was like 15 with um 
I guess you could say agnosticism, uh, but really like the, the fundamental destruction of, you know, Aristotelian metaphysics that they're, you know, A equals A, we exist, existence exists, reason can attain, you know, acquire actual real knowledge. And I didn't have any of these pieces to put together at 15 at all exploded. It all just fell apart. And um, despite my Catholic education being full of genuinely wonderful people, well-intentioned, wonderful people, no one is smarter than a 17 year old male. Sure. There's scary. just no, there just isn't They're the smartest creatures in the universe. And so I started consuming tons of apologetic content, ended up listening to Dennett, Dawkins, Hitchens, Harris, all the wonderful four horsemen, horsemen. of the non-apocalypse. Yeah. 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 And it just ruined me, man. It's just, you know, I just started thinking all kinds of silly wrong things, but they're so, they are so compelling. And, um, I wasn't able to get satisfactory answers from uh, my theology or philosophy teachers. They were younger than you. Um, you know, they were like 35 uh, teaching a 17, 18 year old. Um, so I just gave them hell and uh, got really, really full of myself. And then eventually just sort of completely um, fell away. And then it wasn't until a few years later, um, the true sting of nihilism uh, you know, I was really feeling it and then tried to disprove my atheism, uh, with a podcast called the prodigal and successfully did. So it was about 10 episodes. I, I interviewed various individuals. I interviewed Aaron raw. If you remember him, mm-hmm. yes. um, John Sanford, who's a, a Christian apologist for uh, disproving evolution. Uh, I went from like writing papers about how evolution was the coolest and most rational explanation for like the existence of life to now I think it's like the most hilarious fairy tale ever. Um, and I credit a lot of that to him. So I did sort of wind back the clock. And now I guess where I'm sitting is um, in a, a deep and genuine belief in a theistic, you know, Thomistic Aristotelian God. And I'm struggling with the personal theism of, well, it's, it's the historical person of Christ in these books here. That's, that's kind of the hang up that I have at present. Yeah. You know, when you're struggling with the axiomatic problem, that your grandfather pitched to you, which was the problem of the, the postmoderns, that none of the axioms are true. The physical and the syntagmatic and the linguistic space into which he uttered those words. I'm not just being a, a pain in the ass now in your grandpa's ass. Literally the space into which he uttered those words. Look at all the axioms that yeah. <laughs> he, he, he made appeals to just yeah, by yeah, uttering yeah. that anti-axiomatic thing. Right. This is literally right. a principle called retorsion that uh, French Aristotelians brought out of Aristotle. I think it's book eight of the metaphysics. It's called retorsion. So, so dig this. In a strict Aristotelian proof or even a less strict quia demonstration is what it's called. Uh, you can't prove first principles or axioms because they are the, the, the currency, the atoms with which propositional logic operates, right? But what you can do via Aristotelian retorsion is you can show that one falls into self-contradiction if they attempt to elide 
using certain axioms. For example, when your grandpa says, there's no way that any of the axioms can cohere. He's making appeals to the axiom of causation, right? <laughs> he's, he's, um, he's suffering yeah. to speak. He's making an appeal to the axiom of the principle of the excluded middle, that it can't both be true and not be true. Yeah. Um, that there has to be a, there can't be a third part. He's making an appeal to the principle of non-contradiction that it can't yeah. be true and untrue at the same way at the same time. And there's another one I'm, I'm forgetting about. I, I thought about it a second ago. Oh, and he's making an appeal to the first principle of practical reason, right? That, that, you know, he's not bothering to say it unless it's good, do the good, avoid the evil. So literally you have at least four that I thought of just now and um, Aristotle gives the example that if someone would were to assert, there are no assertions, this is what we call a performative uh, contradiction. And yeah. he would have to be as, uh, I'm not, no disrespect to grandpa, he would have to be as silly or as vapid as a plant. In some translations of Aristotle, it's a carrot. So literally there have to be axioms. Yeah. And this is the, the, the boat on which you get off with guys like Dennett and Dawkins. And yet Dawkins and Dennett, you know, my, my co-author on Don't Go to College, Dr. Michael Robillard is like, wait a minute. <laughs> he always makes this joke. He goes, there are no moral imperatives in the universe. There's no epistemic space into which these may be uttered. But trans, trans have rights. You know, they're just fabricating ex nihilo these rights yes. of trans. Yes. And like, what? What are you talking about? Or you get like Cornell West being like reparations for blacks or something like that. But there is no moral absolute in the world. Or you get, uh, um, we were just making jokes about the, the black physicist guy. What's his name? Oh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Like, there is no such thing as even gravity, let alone natural law. But we need to give rights to LGBT and women. It's like, wait, what are you talking about? It's <laughs> epistemically bankrupt. And yeah. um, it's not your grandpa's fault, but he's playing in that sandbox of absolutely what, what Ed Faser called the, the last superstition, just the total self-contradiction of the postmodernists and atheists. You know, and at 15, how in the <laughs> world did I, you know, yeah. and now... Uh, I love the phrase suffer to speak because now I'm to me, that's the easiest way when actually trying to debate anybody who's attempting to break apart the, the fabric of reality. I'm like, well, you're, you're quite literally using words. And by doing so, you're assuming that I'm correct about everything. Yeah. 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 Or at least that the, the, uh, the, uh, the conditions for the possibility of me being correct are pre-furnished, you know, is what, what, what philosophers uh, risk being punched in the face by using the term, that's what we presuppose when you, when you suffer to speak. So I, I, you know, look, I wanna bring out this aspect, Nick, uh, that, that challenges some of my own assumptions. I kind of already mentioned it. My view is that I've said this before, I've been saying it publicly for about four years, that if I had been raised with the TLM or even Eastern Catholic, Byzantine Catholic, the way you were, I don't think I ever would have fallen away. No one can say, right? Because it's like a um, subjunctive reality. 
like that. It's a back to the future too reality. You have to sit there and do the math as to, okay, would I have fallen away? In this? I got that reference. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. On Doc's, Doc's subverted timeline. Right? Yeah. 1985 a and 1985 b well if i go back to 1980 because i was i was born in 1981 right if i go to 1985 a and 1985 b i often have it rigged up in my mind the way no offense out there people because i'm a trad but the way the simple trads do where they reduce everything they boil it all down to yeah the liturgy if i had been raised with either the byzantine i'm I'm a roman supremacist Uh, i'm not i'm not gonna lie but but the Byzantine is a good second option. I think I think most people would prefer it to the Novus Ordo. And, oh, um, immensely, yeah. It's it's something beautiful. It's I mean, gorgeous. It's, it's absolutely yeah. gorgeous. Divine liturgy, yeah. But if I'd had either that or the Latin Mass, I most often think nine times out of ten when I think about this, I think, yeah, I don't think I ever would have fallen away. But you, by your very life, as Scrooge says in Christmas Carol, by your very life, you're sort of a counterexample, a counterproof. Like, yeah, you knew how I I I alter boyed for many years, but I never learned the to, to alter boy the Latin mass. You did that. I mean, I was five years old when I was on the altar for the first time. I started in the Byzantine church. I knew the, the Byzantine divine liturgy before I knew the Roman mass. And then uh, in high school as a freshman started Latin mass. And uh, my mom likes to remind me that one of my, one of the things that I told her is that my favorite place to be was kneeling on the left side of the priest, as he said, Corpus Christi Custodia I said, that was my favorite place to be. And then, you know, how much that broke her heart that, you know, at, at that time I was like, as annoying of a Reddit fedora hat tipping atheist as you could possibly have. <laughs> That's so fake and gay sounding, but you're a good dude. And, uh, and, and you're I was legit. always a good dude. I was just, yeah. I was just very convinced of, of, uh, and look, they are good arguments. And, and a buddy of mine has an awesome, uh, an awesome line that he told me whenever anybody wants to talk about, like have a Bible study with him or talk in general, he said, well, I don't want to confuse you with really good arguments that can be wrong. Right. That's, Why that's, would I do that? Yeah. That's intellectually salubrious uh, of him to, to say that because there are, as every, I don't know, philosoph, as every uh, sophistic attorney out there knows, there are good sounding, very glib, even tight seeming arguments that are, that are straight wrong. And, and yeah. I mean, honestly, this is why I pitched this to you is is it one of those glib sounding tight seeming arguments to uh, that, that, that us trads are always using to model the universe after strictly the liturgy? I think it is. I mean, you are a counterexample yeah. in this yeah, way. And absolutely. it's like, I think that the way I've been framing it up lately is that it's um, the reason it's not straight erroneous to frame it up that way. That way being, I don't know, I wouldn't have fallen away if I'd, attended the TLM all my life is because the TLM and the, the outstripping of it and the movement to the, the Novus Ordo is part and parcel of a bigger trend in the church in the sixties and seventies than just a liturgical one. It's not the other way around that. I would say that, that the movement to the Novus Ordo is part and parcel of the feminization of the church uh, rather than the feminization of the church being part and parcel of 
the church moving to the Novus Ordo liturgically. And I think that if you, if you frame it up in that way, you take, you take the species to genus relationship and you invert it and you take right. that on board, then right. all of a sudden you could probably quite fairly characterize yourself the same way I would. Cause I was a atheistic leaning agnostic when I was 20, 21, 22 as well. And you were raised with better liturgy than I was, but it, but, but we're both part of that feminized church that has not been restored even partially. I mean, the liturgy has been restored partially. People your age actually know a lot about the Latin mass. Whereas I didn't even learn that I could go to the Latin mass until shortly before uh, Samorum Pontificum, you know, when I was already married, you know, and I was already coming back to the temptations of the faith. So, but, but the feminization has not been even partly restored. Is that, is that a fair way to rig it up? It hasn't been restored even remotely. And the Latin mass attending a Latin mass doesn't resolve that critique that young men would have with Christianity. And I think in this current effeminate Christianity, uh, it makes me ask the question, is Christianity fundamentally effeminate? And this is sort of what you and I have, have talked about. I just I just said this to a friend of mine, yep. that the figure of Christ in the Bible is not a romantic figure in that no woman would ever read the Gospels and look at the figure of Christ as a potential mate or spouse ever. In our current understanding of, okay, what do women orient themselves toward? What attributes do they orient themselves toward? Christ is not a masculine, romantic role model. I'm striving to be one, but if I can't look to the Gospels and see, okay, if I emulate my life precisely like Christ or Paul or Peter, um, I think I'd be single the rest of my life. You know, I'd literally end up being Roosh. No offense to Roosh. I love the guy, but still, um, you know, I'd be making pizza in my mom's basement and like getting really good at understanding what kind of dough bakes a certain way versus uh, your, to be you know, fair, Peter, Paul, Jesus, never, ever, ever would have, would have uh, submitted to their audience. Things like, you know, I, I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna make the the Roosh thing because it would be like blasphemous. But he says some pretty bad stuff. Whereas I think what you're saying, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I think what you're saying is, on a first look, Christ is not romantically masculine. I would say look again. I would say he is. Well, well, you go on. I would say look again though, and we'll talk about that in a second. I'm sorry to interrupt the point you're making. That's all right. Um, it's your show, as they say. The I think there's two aspects of masculinity that men such as myself care about right now. And the first is being a good um, spouse. And the second is solving the evil in the world around them. And I have yet to look to the figure of Christ and see how to be a good spouse in the um, overarching sense, obviously you have the selflessness, you have the, the underlying virtues, but in the overarching sense of like literally what you and your wife have written in your books, which I have on my coffee table, which we've been reading. And then uh, the, <laughs> the biggest one is like, they are raping our world and yeah. we turn the other cheek 
right? Like our project disregarding Christianity as young men should be to find each individual person responsible for the rape and destruction of our world and make an example out of them and their corpses. That's what we should be doing. In any other point in history, we know this world is, in the words of, I think, Sam Hyde, this world is not dying, it's being murdered, and the murderers have names and addresses. But when I look to the Gospels, I don't see the message of go find them and make them pay and then set the world right. That's not what I see. So, yes, in addition to, like, the the specific question of, okay, how do I get from theism to theistic personalism? I also look at it from a, like a utilitarian standpoint, like as a young man who's trying to both live and thrive in this world, how am I going to be a good husband and how am I going to set this evil right? And just right now, maybe I'm reading it wrong. I can't see how to do that. Now, one last point, uh, the you yourself are a contradiction to my point because you are doing both of those things. You're a phenomenal husband. I admire you and what you've done with your family. And you're also setting the world right. So perhaps, so perhaps you can reconcile that for me. Thanks. Thanks. I, okay. Let, let me take those points one at a time. And, and thank you, Nick. That's, that's kind of you. Okay. The first point about Christ not offering because he's celibate. So in his celibacy, he doesn't offer explicit exemplariness for future male bridegrooms. I I, th- I think I can counter that easily. Your second point about want red-blooded high T masculine dudes like like you and me wanting to revenge ourselves on the world. Yeah. I'm not I'm not trying to mischaracterize your point, but I'll speak for myself there and I know you visited us at our place a month and a half ago or so, and we were talking about this kind of uh, Sam Hyde's point, wanting to revenge ourselves on the world. That Christ can't indulge us. Okay, so let me go through these one at a time. Sure. Jesus need not be, I know it sounds like a stretch at first, but it's not. Just bear with me. Jesus need not have forsaken celibacy to teach me how to be the ultimate man who's not celibate the man who's married to one woman. Uh, Ephesians 5, a husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, this doesn't mean that me, Tim, is the soteriological savior of, of Steph, who, who you know also. It means I'm literally in, in real time, in place and space history. I am to be the savior of my wife and my kids If we're filling, you know, we're going to hit the road, not too long, fill up at the gas station and some guy comes by, I literally use my, my, my body as, uh, you know, a a bulletproof vest between the assassin and my kids or my wife, uh, is the church submits to Christ. So wives should submit to their husbands and everything because of this tremendous way that the Lord Jesus wired up the universe, and he's our model in that. He's our supernatural savior. Husbands are the natural saviors of their family in places of danger. First Corinthians, um, where is it? We are the head. Uh, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovers 
uh, uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. So, and, and then it dot, dot, dot in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse three through seven, man is the image and glory of God. Woman is the glory of man. So we are kind of a, a mediator between God and our wives. And that's precisely what it means to say that man is the household priest. Uh, in 1 Peter 3, Nick, verses 1 through 6, I'm going to read 4, 5, and 6. Wives, submit, uh, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, this is how wives can help out husbands, they may be won over without words by the behaviors of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Um, I'll skip forward a little bit. For this is the way that holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. Uh, th now, this is, of course, St. Paul, but, but you, know, you kind of lumped him in with Jesus. Um, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So there's always this Christological, ecclesiological analogy with four analogates, Jesus, the bridegroom, the church, the bride, actual bridegrooms like me, actual brides like Steph, since you used that as an example. Ephesians 5, verse 33, not, not a controverted one. Each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. We owe love, the wife owe respect. That's different. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. I'm hitting this like a Protestant, all scripture. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner, just as the church is the weaker partner of Jesus, and as heirs with you of the gracious gifts of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So this is, this is serious stuff. Um, I'd like to point out how this is unfair because you have notes. Yeah, no, I know. I know. It's totally unfair because I've no, and these are notes built on, I mean, these are our bibliographies from two books, a book I wrote and a book I helped to yeah. edit. So Literally I'm just saying, no chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, but I want you to take heart because as to your concern, A, you shouldn't be concerned. Jesus, he shared everything with us. He is the ideal man. He shared everything aside from sin or the, the, the corporal aspects of concupiscence, any aspects of concupiscence, in this case, corporal. So he, he was celibate. That doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean that he can't be the ultimate man, the ultimate example of man. Now, B, um, God says, vengeance is mine. This is, this is all well, the old can we Before we go to B, can we stick on um, the husband aspect? What about success? Because Christ speaks about money um to the rich man he says sell everything and um he also says that it's essentially impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven for if you're wealthy um not impossible but damn near because uh of the conflict of interest that generating wealth often creates um but as a man i also hunger for success for wealth um, for influence, for power. I want to control my environment. I want to make it safe and good. And um, a lot of that has to do with, I think, success in the rawest form. And when I look at the figure of Christ or even the 12 apostles, I don't see any of that. I see, um, you know, literally sell everything. 
sell become i i hear be a hippie literally be a hippie in a van following jesus with a cardboard sign none of the apostles had vans then that that would be if i were doing this the way like nbc or cbs refutes arguments <laughs> they'd be like well did the apostles have vans next no it's it's a good it's a good point of distinction and i've struggled with that too um number one um in this analogy of Jesus, it's as hard for a rich man to make it into heaven as uh, passing through the eye of a needle. Do you know what the eye of a needle actually is? Yeah, this of course. Is in okay, in in the middle in the middle eastern towns, particularly port towns, to get in, there is a narrow wedge into the city, usually next to a mountain, and it's called the eye of the needle. So if you're traveling by camel. All of the goods, all of the freight would have to be taken off and inspected one by one. And so there's this very real distinction that Jesus is making. If you want to make it into heaven, a rich man can. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas writes on this extensively with the uh, Aristotelian virtue of magnificence. It doesn't actually need to hinder you. You just have to be willing to shed it. You have to be willing to shed it. You have to not shed it and also take each and every good off and justify it. Have it be inspected. How did you generate this wealth? See, that's, you you know how frustrating it is for me to hear a good explanation for this after all these years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's infuriating. It's actually pisses me off that it's taken this long to get to a point where somebody says, well, the eye of a needle is not the eye of a needle in a camel. Right. Because that's ludicrous. That's right. a silly thing to say. It's actually here, this geographic point, And also you can be wealthy and St. Thomas writes about it. Like, right. It's just, it's very, it, it grieves me um, because so many people are probably led astray by the same things that literally up until 8 20 PM on September 28th, did I hear a even remotely reasonable explanation for that? Well, me too. And it's, it's a trad priest that shared that one with me. And then in my, my research for uh, Catholic Republic, I found even good, good Calvinist ministers. There's one called Baxter, who they, they felt even more compelled to either refute that ostensibly damning claim to the rich against the rich, or to just all be a bunch of hippies falling around Jesus in their, in their VW vans, just like the apostles did. Um, and, and this guy Baxter said, no, um, wealth is perfectly fine. I think he even begrudgingly cites Aristotle because the, the, the Protestants don't like Aristotle. He's the buffoon who ruined Christianity, to borrow Luther's joke. Um, it must, it's possible to have it all, but kind of like the eye of the needle, it must be worn like a light rather than an iron cloak. So if wealth is properly disposed of and, and one is properly disposed toward it, then it actually should be an aid in the material life. It should be an aid in the spiritual life. It should be an aid in getting you into heaven because you can I think do so. good with it. But, well, but it, in it addition, shouldn't weigh you down. It's a fight club thing. In addition to that, I was debating about um, the monastic life versus what would you call it when you're not in the monastic, when you're in the world? Uh, yeah, I just call it a, a worldly uh, acquisitive life or something. I don't know. Yeah. And I, I was getting sort of irritated with the proposition that, well, okay, if you're, if you're a monk or a nun, right, you're holier 
you're more righteous because you have less interaction with the world, less chances of sin, fewer temptations. A lot of it happens in the mind and the heart, right? You're not exposed to the smut of the world. So um, you might, you might get by better. And I, once again, I mean, maybe I'm just uh, too hot headed, but I got pissed at this argument because I think that a man is far more honorable when he is sitting in the mud and the blood and the shit and decides not it's right there. He could, he's got money. He's got an iPhone. He's got a car. He has all of the opportunities for it. It was, it's uh, I think Peterson says this, um, that like a rabbit is not moral or virtuous because it doesn't harm the lion. It can't, it literally can't you are neutered. And I think that as a man, like if you generate wealth morally and you are doing consequential things, taking on extremely heavy burdens, if you sin, I think it's, it is a lesser sin. It's less grievous, even though it might have greater consequence because of your position and power in the world than somebody who has no capacity to sin. And it's more virtuous if you elect not to when you absolutely could than somebody who has no option to do so. Yeah, this is this is an interesting paradox that I'll, I'll grant you. It arises out of Jesus saying, look, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. In other words, avoid the occasions of sin. I do think that this passage has not been put into its proper context often enough um, I, because I agree with you. Uh, and actually the moral teaching on the disposition of sin, I'm, I'm teaching the Baltimore catechism for every sin. There's a subjective component, an objective component, and a kind of mixture, subjective, objective component. There's three. And so like the first time you do heroin, if you do heroin, not that people out there should, um, it is more gravely evil because of the subjective component, you're not yet addicted. Then the hundredth time when you're completely subjectively addicted, it's, it's less evil and act then. And similarly, yes, there is something to what you're saying, Nick, about avoiding the occasions of sin. Actually, I don't know how the squares with being a monk or a religious, I'm not so much addressing that. I'll have to think about that one in all honesty, but, but just avoiding the occasions of sin, um, means that you're refusing to live in the world, but not of the world. It means, look, I, I, I at this point don't have the Aristotelian temperance to be around thus and such without partaking of it in a sinful way. So I, I, do, I do think there's something to what you're saying. I, I said this when um, we were talking about like doing a total iPhone fast because other Catholic influencers do a total, I, I go without my iPhone or, or whatever for X amount of time. Lots of them do it. And I'm like, but many of these same influencers seek out Aristotle to inform their shows. And Aristotle says, look, temperance means you can have an iPhone without being on it all day, without ignoring your kids or getting caught up in porn. That's what the truly temperate man would do. So I agree with you. And there is some sort of teasing out in the moral theology of, of a Catholic that needs to be done there that doesn't get enough coverage, where it's like, avoid the occasions of sin if you're near the edge. 
Well, um, it lends itself to being impotent as well. Like if, if us as Catholic men really want to do any good in this world, and that does lead to the second question about vengeance is mine. But if we really want to do anything good in this world, we have to be immensely powerful. We have to be superior in wealth and in intellect and in position and in status. We have to be because the, our enemies own money itself. They own the government. Voting's not real. None of this is real. And so if we want to at least yeah. protect our area like you have to have that level of power and you don't get that power by uh saying five hail marys before you go to bed reading your bible and just like really hoping you don't touch your pee pee like that's not how you're going to get there like you got to stick your hands in the mud and and start working um and in interacting with and, and and winning these small battles up until you get to a, a real level of of influence i agree i look i don't I don't disagree. And I just say it's, it's always sounds like a cop out or some sort of Hegelian cop out, but it, I'd say it's a both and not an either or. And that's what the faith I think discloses is a both. And it's like, look, be Charlemagne, uh, be, you know, be Constantine after he actually converted be Charles V. Um, you, you know, say your rosary but also be powerful. And this is why so many Catholics are excited once more about, you know, monarchism, which is in theory, the, the ultimate best form of government when you have a good man to do the job, because he can be in, extremely virtuous, the most virtuous man in the land when monarchy works as it's wired to do. And he's powerful. And he can create a Catholic culture across the land because a Catholic cult. And here's the wedding of the two points that I think you're after, Nick. When you have a combination of worldly power by a virtuous man, worldly power by a virtuous man, then all of a sudden you can set the conditions for the possibility of a true Catholic culture that will capture the minds and the hearts of all the morally mediocre out there that otherwise with a more dangerous, wicked Luciferian culture, which is what we have, those people will be the ones to slip into the cracks. And that's what I meant by with real wealth, with real power, a truly good man can do real good. And, and I don't, the, the faith does not contradict you, my friend. I mean, Constantine in the, in the Eastern Orthodox church is revered as a saint. His mother is revered as a saint in both the Orthodox and the Catholic Church. Charlemagne is a hero, no matter what you think of him. Charles V, all these powerful men, all these powerful Charleses, uh, they, they exemplify that the, that the faith does not contradict the point you're after. Well, but then now, it begs the question. Well, actually, I don't want to use that incorrectly. Beg, does it beg the question? What does that mean? You had a post about that. Oh, yeah. 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 Say, say it went. To say it begs the question is a formal fallacy, right? It's like uh, I'm not here to make formal fallacies, Tim. Please yeah, yeah, disabuse me. Yeah, I always tell people say beggar the question because begs the question is if you're like there are two miners in the woods, they stumble across three pieces of gold. A says to B, that's two for me and one for you, and B says, why is that two for you and one for me? And then A says, well, because I'm the leader of this outfit. And then B says, why are you the leader of this outfit? And then A says, because I have two pieces of gold, right? That's a petitio principio begging the question. But I yeah. knew what you meant because everyone says it. We're changing the lane. I, or just say beggars the question. So you're not. It makes me that. wonder then. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, uh, are we even trying to, like, is, is the per Perugia upon us? 
uh, should I be trying to stack cash and um, influence the world and really change things for the better? Or should I be buying five gallon jugs of queso and hunkering down because it's all coming down very soon? Well, I don't think I, I would never tell a man in person or over a screen not to buy a, a five gallon jug of queso. It's just a good idea, no matter who you are. I, I If we had <laughs> Jesus on the Zoom call, he'd be like, bro, get the <laughs> five gallon jug of queso Do it. and avoid all, 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 you know, instances of sin in your life. You can do both. I feel like I'm, I feel like it's effeminate to give the both and answer. And I, I don't, I don't like that, but I, it's really the case here. You can, I do think the Perugia is not far away though. What does that mean? It could still be three generations away. I do think we're somewhere near the end given uh -huh. what, what, I mean, I was talking to a very, very, very well-respected theologian of position the other day. I won't say who it is. And we were like, okay, Pope Francis, um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't not feel like the great apostasy at the end of the time. Like no one wants to say like, this is probably the end of time coming yeah. soon, but it doesn't not feel like that. So I, I mean, like if, if, if this were the great apostasy, do you think it would feel worse than having Francis as Pope? No. Do you think it would feel better? No, I think it would feel just like what it feels like to have Francis as Pope. So <laughs> that's not me saying I'm positive. The Perugia is nigh. But it's, but it's probably pretty close. So just just come into the faith, man. Come back into the faith, and uh, and and then we'll we'll eat five gallon jugs of queso together. Yeah, but the thing is, that I'm not certain, and so I think it's you know really worth gambling with my eternal soul on my own uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. my own 24 year old intellect, bro. Yeah, yeah. I think I just have to really answer every question my 24 four year old mind can come up with before I submit to the King of the Universe. So. <laughs> right. Right. So, so wise, so wise. That's what, I, that's what I say. Um, I mean, and you've probably seen the, the uh, smegma, the smegmatic drawings and paintings coming out of the, the synod. They're all over Twitter. It is. A total... I only know the, uh, the ligma. <laughs> oh gosh. I, it was my image. So it's my fault, but they're just awful. The image, go look after we finish. I just saw them, but I didn't know what I was looking at. What is that? It's like pride stuff. There, there's, there's a woman and it says queer over her. I thought they didn't like to be called queers, but um, it, it says it all kinds of like graphic novel art with, with all kinds of uh, freaks and, and, you know, weirdos and, and uh, gender dysphorics that are allegedly at the peripheries of the church being brought in. It just makes me think a little bit more. I'm never quite sure, but it makes me closer to preponderant uh, when I look at the evidence and add it all up that we are close to the Perusia. And I just think, man, the main reason, if me and you are right today, that it's really the effeminacy of the church since around Vatican II all four female doctors of the church were brought in after Vatican II, by the way, Nick, um, that I think that's what kept me and you and so many of our friends out. And you're, you're almost a full generation younger than me. But it's that young men want answers. You were, you were texting me the other night about what's, what's Anselm's ontological proof. It's really the best one. It's just the least understood. It's a very well, masculine yeah. thing to do. It just hit me. 
Yeah. It just hit me the other day. Um, and I, I did read um, Phaser's blog post about it uh, as per usual for philosophers. She's not brief, but yeah. um, never. it did. For some reason, it just all started clicking into place with Anselm. Look, man, um, if vengeance is the Lord's, to what degree ought you and I really be laying into the injustice and the pure degeneracy and the evil? Yeah. Well, you try, here's the thing. And this is the coupling. You combat the degeneracy of the world. You fight for the Shire, like the hobbits to the extent that the control over it, um, ultimately is determinative of more souls going to either heaven or hell. And, and it is a real thing. Like you fight for the Catholic culture and, and you'd love to have a Charlemagne or something like that, not because of the spirit of vengeance, which both of us feel, but under the principle of double effect, rather because with Catholic culture, with the Catholic culture in place, all of the uh, crusades, except for the fourth, are officially recognized holy wars, by the way. So the church acts embarrassed based. by that stuff. Yeah, it's based. It's based. The church, for its embarrassment of riches and things like the crusades, it, it actually hasn't condemned these. These are holy wars. So that proves that there is some reasonable distinction, Nick, between the kind of what you're mistaking I insist, as a feminacy of Christ and the early disciples and the first apostles and the first three centuries of Christians who were basically just Benedict option. And because they didn't have the culture, they're just in a, a Jewish section of the Roman Empire. They were minorities within minorities. There's that. But then after Constantine, after the Edict of Milan, they had a majority and they had a, a, a demographical majority and a and a political majority and political power, not just influence any longer. And that political power is good and holy because when there is a Catholic culture in Europe for what we, what we call Europe for the last six centuries of the first Christian millennium and the first couple centuries of the second Christian millennium, they did a lot of good. More people got to heaven then than they do under a secular culture. So that's the wedding of the two points, I think. So what I'm hearing you say is that it's moral to want to win. It's moral to win. And that the version, regardless of how, you know, if Jesus is coming next Tuesday or in three generations from now, um, and the way that you do that is by instantiating a Catholic culture. And then the way you instantiate a Catholic culture is by being a badass, patriarchal, powerful man Yes. who is in submission to Christ. Yes, yes. And you can't, you can't take the vengeance on your own. We need to beat these guys, the, the Luciferian elites. We need to beat them, but then, you know, beat them at their own game. That's winning. But then there's not, you know, grounding them into the dust. Then, then let, it sounds gay, procedural due process take over, you know, and that, that doesn't mean, yeah, that, the, that the that is gay that that the individual nation states don't hold the power of prerogative pope francis and john paul ii i can say as a catholic philosopher i don't talk on ecclesiology because i don't know much about that so when diamond debates Casman, i can only say what i think 
you know, as a non-expert. But I can say that Francis and John Paul II are formally wrong under Thomistic action theory about the death penalty. We can still have our nation states dispose of wicked men under something called the prerogative of the prince. The state holds an extra power to use the death penalty that is holy and good that ordinary citizens don't have. All I'm saying is once we beat them, assuming that we do and that we can, this side of the eschaton, which I'm not sure about, we, guys like you and I aren't allowed to take vengeance individually. That's either for the Got prince, on acting it. under the whole sovereign power of the people, or leave it leave it to God at the end. But no, winning is masculine, and the, the Catholic spirit is Christian masculinism. Well, it's even two thoughts. It's even cooler to be able to slit their throats and not because because yeah. not because you're like I'm just better than you, but because what you built around you is so indestructible that it it literally doesn't matter whether or not they live or not anymore. Right, right. Because they're impotent. We make them the impotent ones instead of what do we have now? A Christian culture with a bunch of henpecked, emasculated, cuckolded Christian Ned Flanders guys. And that's what it's taken to be to be a a Christian. And we make them into the eunuchs. We make them into, look, like Saruman after uh, Two Towers, right? To to introduce a, a nerdy analogy. I mean, and that's... I guess the the only reason why you would um, bring down the sword is if you genuinely don't believe that th- um, not terminating them would solve it. Right? If you think they would they would subvert um, what you have built just by their very nature? Um, right. A, a question I have that might um, that that for me has been helping shift how I see Christ is uh, John one as a real understanding of John one. Um, it wasn't in the beginning was being nice. Literally did every time I hear like cry, be Christ-like all I'm hearing is like, be nice. Uh, it's so bad. And, and um, so of course, of course I don't want to be Christ-like. Uh, and, but when you read John one directly translated in the beginning was the logos which is to say meaning the the substance of existence the um the actual core of it is coherent logical rational true beautiful and good meaning so in the beginning was that and that is through which all things were made um and when i hear that i'm like well absolutely i'll submit to that i will live for that i will freaking die for that but that is not the Christ that I have been taught my entire life. My the Christ that I've been taught is like j- just be a woman. Yeah, yeah. They, they, okay, so this has to be my parting shot here because we're almost out of time. But that's because you're high T, man. That's because you're actually not disordered. That's because well, one thing you said that's cool that reminds me of uh, Schindler's List is remember when um, Liam Neeson manages to, for like half a day or a day, convince that one Nazi prison guard that what's even more base than power is restrained power, which is true. It's like doubly potent power is to have the power and to not use it. That's what a Christian Lord does. And, and then the guy forgets it a day later and starts killing innocent people again <laughs> in the camp. But, but, but think about it. What you said is just what Shia said, man, in the famous Shia interview with Bishop Barron. It's like, 
Look, I, he, he said, I always thought John the Baptist was cool because he's manly, he's angry, he's not nice, he's grouchy. This is, this is how men are. I, I don't want to be nice. I mean, I think you're a nice guy for the record. Most, most people that meet me, you or I are like, those are pretty nice dudes. But like, I don't want to be nice in this Susan from the parish council way that's just fake and gay and say everything's charity. Say you got to yeah. suffer wrong answers and limp-wristed approaches to the world out of niceness. That's, that's not what we like. And that's not what Jesus liked. But Shia said, what I learned is from, from the brothers who were teaching me as I shot Padre Pio, that Jesus was more manly. He was more of a mensch than John the Baptist. And I, I assure you, I don't know much, but I know that that's right. I'll give you the last word, Nick. No, that's, that's I'm not going to top that. I'm yeah, well, top that. you just said that Jesus was uh, was even more of a man. And look, man, if I can if I can fall in love with that, um, the path is clear. And I think the path will be clear for um, other young men, because right now it is it's kind of a LARP to a large degree. They're like we need something. What do we what do we got around here? We need. some. Uh, well, this one's really old. Let's pick this one because it's really old and it's kind of based and there's like white people in it. So like we'll just pick the Catholic Church. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I well, there's gotta be something there's space emerging. I already said I had my last shot, but I'm calling it CMAS Christian masculinism. This is the way forward. That's Christian masculinism is just Roman Catholicism. It's what built Western civilization. And you have this wide road between all these effeminate henpecked nerdy Ned Flanders is in modern uh, feminist Roman Catholicism. You have them everywhere. And then, and they're like, they have it like 70% right, but it's a big 30% they have wrong. And then you have like Andrew Tate or Old Roosh or take your pick of the red-pilled masculinist guys. They have, I mean, you listen to them critique feminism and they sound like they have 70 to 80% of it right. The middle way is a kind of Christian masculinism. And that that's a nuanced way of just saying Roman Catholicism. So- I hear I hear the baby baby crying here, and uh, th this has been a real good thing. But what I can tell you is I literally have a new kind of direction for this channel, which is um, going to be collaborating with guys like Elliot Hulse, um, where where possible, with guys like the Martyr Maid uh, channel, with guys like uh, people saw Will Noland and my my co-author uh, Michael Dr. Michael Robillard, who's like you know an army ranger and an MMA fighter, good Catholic men that can say, here's what's right about the based red pilled masculinist movement, but you can't get it because normal guys aren't going to be Andrew Tate and he gets stuff wrong anyway. And here's what's right from even the, the Christian Ned Flanders guys that you, you got to combine them and show the way forward is with true testosterone meets virtue under the cross in the sky that Constantine saw when he conquered all the world. Preach sister. I will mother. <laughs> I, I love you, man. Well, we're going to see you soon. Um, I'm excited. Very excited. Yeah. You're a good friend of the show. I, I won't say too much more than that, but um, this has been great. And I, I hope you continue on this journey and we, we text a lot. So, and we see each other a, a decent amount. So stay strong, stay, chase it down. You will yeah. not go wrong 
by finding the full truth. Thomas says, truth can't contradict truth. It'll bring you all the way back in. And uh, I await that day with bated breath. Nick Stumphauser. As do I. Much love, Tim. Thank you so much for having me. Much love, brother. We'll, we'll see you very soon. God bless you, parish orphans and retrogrades. Support this channel, please. If Even if you don't like this video, whether you like it or you like it, or you hate it. I, I don't even care. Just just go and subscribe to the channel <laughs> because we're, we're trying, we, our growth has been very steady, but we, we wanna keep up. Uh, we're trying to get to 50,000 before middle of 2023, 50,000 subs. Uh, also go to realestateforlife.org and get the hell out of your blue states. Get to a red state like Mississippi or I don't know, Florida. Do it today. God bless you all. Await the coming of the King. He comes, I think, Soon, soon rather than late. Des Volt. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit.